Great to be with you guys this morning. Love that we just uh, sang those words. All my life you have been faithful. If that's true in your life this morning, can you say amen? amen? All our life faithful through and through, moment by moment, victory by victory, hardship by hardship, the Lord is continually and perpetually faithful. So I'm glad to be worshiping him with you guys uh, this morning. Um, if you have your Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. And as you're turning there, let me just reiterate uh, my thankfulness to be, you know, here with you guys today. Appreciate so much the church's encouragement, support, generosity to me and my family and to our staff. It's great to be part of a church that loves and appreciates uh, the staff. And we feel that. And we want to say thank you to everybody in this church for being a part of that. Um, I do want to reiterate the fact that if this is your first time with us, welcome. If this is your first time here or back to church in a long time, welcome back. Uh, so we are glad to have each and every one of you guys with us today. Um, and if you're joining us online, uh, man, it's just great to have people every week, new people meeting that we meet who are joining online. Thanks for tuning in as well. And like Scott mentioned earlier, it is great to see some of your faces actually in person who are normally over at UBC East. So glad to have uh, many of you guys here with us in this service today. Um, as we get into God's word today, you know, obviously we're reading God's word. We're, we're kind of coming up to the Christmas holiday. Uh, the older I get, the more I love Christmas, the more I appreciate Christmas. Uh, obviously at Christmas, one of the things that we do is exchange gifts. And that's usually fun um, until you get a gift that requires you to accept it with humility. Like, you know, when someone gives you breath mints in your stocking. Or when someone, you know, gives you deodorant. Um, those not that those things have ever happened to me. A years ago, I have a friend who's a dermatologist. And he came to me and he said, uh, Jason, um, I, have a, I have a gift for you. I'd like to give it to you. I'm like, okay, let's talk about it. What is it? And he said, well, uh, there's this treatment that I would like to give you for free. And I think you'll love it. I think it'll really help you and meet a need. And I'm like, oh, really? What's this need? And he says, well, I've noticed that when you preach, you know, you tend to perspire quite a bit. And we see the rings of sweat in your armpits and that type of thing. And I'm like, all right. Um, and so uh, he offered to give me this treatment that would help, you know, apparently with that. And uh, I thought to myself, well, if I accept that gift, that literally means that I stink, right? Like sometimes, sometimes receiving a gift, uh, a great gift requires uh, great humility. And um, the same is true when it comes to receiving God's greatest gift that he's ever given the world. God's greatest gift that he's ever given the world is the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And as great as that gift is, receiving that gift requires great humility. Um, this is week three of our sermon series that we're calling True Light. And in this series called True Light, we are looking at John chapter one, verses one through 18. Uh, today, we're gonna be looking at verses nine through 13 specifically. But before we get into our text for today, it's always important to remember the context and kind of what surrounds the passage that we're reading today. So on a very high level, we remember today that this book was written by John the Apostle, one of Jesus's closest friends. The same guy who wrote the Gospel of John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation. We also know that John's purpose for writing this letter, he tells us what it is in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these things I have written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that by believing in him, you may have what? Life in his name. 
So John writes this because he wants people like us to have life. And we can't have life apart from belief in Jesus Christ. Um, You know, we have learned in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1 that John introduces Jesus as the light, uh, the light of the world. And he'll go on to reiterate Jesus as the light of the world in subsequent chapters in the Gospel of John. Last week, we looked at verses 6 through 8, where the author introduced a man named John the Baptist. And we said that John the Baptist was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And so last week, we really honed in on this emphasis of being a witness for Christ, which by the way, um, many of you have been asking, like, what are we going to, you know, what sort of sermon series are we going to do after Christmas? And I just want to tell you, when we get done with Christmas, we're going to go into January, we're going to have a whole new sermon series that's really going to hone in on this idea of being a witness for Christ, because we're going to start in January of 2022. And probably for two years, we're going to work our way through the book of Acts. And we're going to learn what it means to be a church filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to learn what it means to be a church on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to learn what it means to live as witnesses, making him known to the ends of the earth, right? Because that's what we, that's what really the call of our church is. We want to be a church that knows Christ and makes him known. And so I hope that as we get ready to go into the new year, I hope you're excited about that. That'll be a nice, long and fun journey for us to work through the book of Acts. But for our text at hand, John chapter one, again, week one was about seeing Jesus as the light. Week two, verses six through eight, was about showing Jesus as the light. Today, I wanna talk about receiving Jesus, receiving Jesus into your life and becoming a child of God. Our text is John 1, verse 9 through 13. I just want to read it. God's word reads this way. It says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is God's good word. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen? Amen. So in our text, really, this word received is, is repeated a couple times. This, this text is about whether or not we're going to receive Jesus, right? There are, there are two people in the world, two types of people in the world. There are two types of people in this room today. Generally speaking, there's one category of people who have received Christ. There's another category of people who have rejected Christ. So it's important for you to figure out today which category are you in. Are you in the category that has received him or are you in the category who has rejected him? So the main call, the main kind of call to action from our text is this. It's to be a child of God, you must receive the Christ who came at Christmas. To be a child of God, you must receive the Christ who came at Christmas. As we look at verses 9 through 13 today, I really want to walk through this message in three parts. I want us to talk first of all about what it means to receive Christ. Then we're going to talk about how it happens when you receive Christ. And then third, we'll talk about who it's for, who can receive Christ. And I hope that you'll hear this message today. And I hope that the Holy Spirit will move in your heart. And if you have already received Christ, then I hope you leave here thankful for your salvation. And if you come to realize that you've never received Christ, my prayer is that you will receive Christ into your life. You'll be born again and you'll become a child of God. All right, so let's get into it and talk about receiving the Christ who came at Christmas. First, let's talk about what it means to receive Christ. Again, in verses 9 through 11, 
John writes and he says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. His own people did not receive him. What does it mean to receive Christ? People have lots of thoughts on this. You might have thoughts on it. What does it it mean to receive Christ? Well, the very next verse, verse 12, tells us what it means to receive Christ. But But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Receiving him means to believe in his name. Now, if you've been here for the past couple weeks, you know this, but we've been talking a little bit about what it means to believe in Christ, right? Belief, we've come to understand, uh, you know, that in the first century when Jesus was here amongst the Jewish culture, to believe meant something much more than it means to us in our culture today. We tend to think of believing as just kind of acknowledging something's existence or the facts about a situation, just kind of mentally acknowledging that it's there. But Belief in the Hebrew world meant something totally different. Belief in the first century world meant a type of believer of belief that produced confidence in that thing. It, it, it produced trust in that thing, so much so that you would take action based upon it. And the classic example that I heard when I was a kid, and you've heard now many times through my preaching, is I could put a chair on this stage, and I could ask you, is this a chair? You could say, yes, it's a chair. And I could say, well, what's its purpose? You know, to, to hold you up if you sit down. And I would say, okay, do you believe that's a chair? And I would say, you know, most of us would say yes. But how do you know if you have true kind of the, the, biblical, um, uh, the biblical acknowledgement of belief? How do you know if it's when you sit in the chair? right? That there's, a, there's such an understanding and a confidence that you literally take action and trust in that thing. Now that's what the scripture is talking about when it says that we would believe in Jesus Christ, that we would believe so much on him that it, uh, we have so much confidence in him that it drives our action. It, it produces a response, right? So when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it produces the response of not just acknowledging that you're a sinner, but repenting of your sin. Not just acknowledging that Christ is a great savior, but in your heart, you worship him and you love him and you want to live for him. You you start to, you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you're not ashamed of it, right? You go public with your faith through the act of baptism and letting everybody know I'm with Jesus and Jesus is with me. Right? It's like putting on your wedding ring where you're saying, you know what, I'm married, I'm with this person, they're with me, and I'm with them, and I'm proud of it. Right? That's what it's like when you get baptized. It's a public acknowledgement of your inward faith in Christ. And so there's this trust and belief in Christ that produces action. That's what it means to believe in him. Now, in, in our text today, uh, our, our scripture says that to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What does it mean to believe in his name? It's kind of like a churchy phrase that we use all the time, but maybe a lot of us may not understand what it means. To believe in someone's name, it goes much further than just saying, you know, that person's name is John Doe, or that person's name is Jane Smith, okay? Like, we, to believe in someone's name in the Hebrew culture meant to believe in all of who they are. That you believe in all of who they are. So when we come to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we believe in all of who he is. In other words, who he has revealed himself to me to be, we accept that about him. 
We place our confidence and our trust in all of who he has revealed himself to be. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe in his name means uh, we don't just accept what the culture thinks about Jesus. We don't just accept the things about Jesus that we prefer to be true. We don't just kind of accept the things about Jesus that just kind of fit with our life or kind of line up with our own opinions. We say, okay, whoever Christ has revealed himself to be, we believe in his name, all of who he is. So you know what that means? To believe in all of who he is, here's what it means. It means that we believe he is the son of God sent from heaven. We believe that he was born of a virgin, Mary. We believe that he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. We believe that he was the spotless lamb of God who died on a cross to take away the sins of the world. We believe that after he was buried in the tomb for three days, that he rose again and ascended to heaven and that he's now seated at the right hand of God. It means to believe that he will one day return to this earth and he will judge the living and the dead. It means to believe that he will one day establish his kingdom and he will reign forever. See, there's things about Jesus that we like. And then there's things that are a little bit more uncomfortable. Everybody wants Jesus as the savior. Nobody wants Jesus as the judge. Everybody likes to know that Jesus, you know, was kind of a good example to us in this life and we could follow his example. But it's harder for people to believe that he died in our place for our sins at the cross and that God's wrath was poured out upon him there. To believe in who Jesus is and believe in his name is to believe in all of who he has revealed himself to be. People don't like to hear about the exclusive claims of Christ. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's harder to accept all of who Jesus is, including his, his claim to be the exclusive way to the Father. To believe in his name means that we affirm the fact that there is only one name under heaven by which man can be saved, the name of Jesus. So the question is really, have you believed in his name? Have you believed in all of who he is? That's what it means to receive him. To receive him in the original Greek language, the word receive is the word paralambano. Paralambano means to have someone or something at your side. Like uh, imagine if you were walking a road alone and then suddenly someone joined you. Now you have a companion. You didn't used to have a companion, but now you do. Uh, imagine that you received a gift or something. You used to not have that possession, but now you have it, right? And so when we receive Christ, we have to come to understand we once didn't have him. Now we have him. When you receive Christ, you take him to yourself and he takes you to himself. That's what it means to receive Christ. That's why Christians for a long time have said you must receive Christ as your savior. And the scripture says here in our text that to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. To become children of God. If you have to become something, that means you weren't that thing before. The point is this. There's a cultural acceptance of this idea that everyone is born a child of God. Don't we hear that all the time? Oh, you're just, we're just all children of God. 
And I understand usually what people mean by that is that they mean, well, you know, God created people. He gave us all life. But we have to understand, not every one of us is a child of God in the sense that we are in his family. You're not born in God's family. It's not just part of who you are. When you're born, you have to become a child of God. And how does the scripture say that you become a child of God? By receiving Christ and believing in his name. You must receive Christ. And then the scripture says he gives you the right to become the children of God. So what does it mean to receive Christ? It means to believe in him and all of who he is. How does it happen? Well, the scripture says that God gives you the right to become the children of God. Isn't that what verse 12 says? To all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I was looking in my studies this week saying, what does this phrase, the right, mean? And I got into this language study a little bit, word study, and the Greek word for the word the right is the word exousia. And exousia means to you know, receive the power or the authority, right? So, so who has the power and authority to make you or me or anybody else a child of God? The scripture's answer is, only God has the right to make someone a child of God. Only God has the power. Only God has the authority. Only God has the ability to make someone his child. That's why John says what he says in verse 13. He talks about those who have become children of God. And he says in verse 13, you know, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In verse 13, John's getting at something very important. Three things that don't make you a child of God. We're talking about how it happens, right? How does it happen that you receive Christ and become a child of God? Well, John tells us three ways it doesn't happen. First of all, he says it doesn't happen because of your family bloodline. It doesn't happen by your family bloodline. He says in verse 13, you who were born not of blood. John is saying that you're not in God's family because of your family bloodline, right? The people uh, then weren't children of God just because they came from Jewish families. Many people in the Jewish culture believed that, you know, because they were born into, Jewish, into a Jewish family, then they were just part of God's family. They were part of God's children. And Jesus makes it very clear that not a, that's not the case for everyone. Not all who are born of Abraham are of Abraham. Not all who are, uh, you know, of Jewish descent are part of the children of promise. In fact, John chapter 8, I'm, I wish I had time, but I'm not, I'll run out of time if I talk about it too much. But on your own, maybe this week, just read John chapter 8, verse 37 through 44 or 47, somewhere around there. And just read, you know, where Jesus is talking to the Jews in the crowds and he tells them, that, you know, God is his father. And they start to have this argument about, you know, whose father Jesus is. And, and the Jews basically go, come and they say, well, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, well, if Abraham was your father, then you would do what Abraham did. And what did Abraham do? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? He believed, but Jesus says, you, are, you same Jews, you're not believing me. You're not believing the truth that I'm sharing. You're not doing the works of Abraham. And Jesus says to these Jews, in fact, the works that you're trying to do, you're trying to kill me. And he says to them, you do those works because of your father. Well, what's Jesus saying? Who's the one who's been the murderer from the beginning? Who's the one who's brought death into the world? Satan. Your father, the devil. 
So Jesus is making a very clear point. People then weren't just children of God because they came from Jewish families. And listen to me, people now aren't just children of God because they come from Christian families. Parents in this room, I'm a parent with you. We've got four kiddos. Every parent in this room, we've got to remember this. Our children are not children of God just because they're raised in a Christian home. They must receive Christ. We must train them to receive Christ. We must call them to receive Christ, to believe in his name. We've got some children in the room today, right? Those of you guys who are kiddos sitting with your parents that are in here, like you guys need to understand this. Like you are not a Christian just because mom and dad are Christians. You're not a Christian just because you're raised in a Christian family. There must come a time when you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior. Your family bloodline does not make you a child of God. Neither does this. John says, your bloodline can't make you a child of God. He also says, neither do your natural impulses, right? You who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. The will of the flesh. What's the flesh? The flesh is your, your body, right? Your body, your, your human nature, right? Our human bodies and our natural, our natural desires, you know, we want a lot of things. We want food and shelter and comforts and, you know, intimacy and, and uh, pleasure and, and rest. You know, we want all these things with our, our fleshly body. But John is saying this, nobody in their flesh desired naturally for God. Nobody in their flesh desires naturally to repent of their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Nobody, you know, becomes a child of God just because that's what your natural flesh wants, right? Our natural flesh just wants to sin. We're naturally inclined to sin and disobey, right? Everybody who's raised a child in this room, nobody in the, no, no parent in this room had to teach your child to disobey. It's just in there, Right? It just comes out. So what do we have to do? We have to teach them about God. It's not part of their natural inclination to trust Christ and repent of sin and receive Christ into their life, right? It's when you and I come to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not from a natural desire. Paul writes about it this way in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, in which in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Right? So he's saying you, you once were dead. You were, you were following the prince of the power of the air. You were just following the ways of Satan in this world. You once did that. That's the way you once walked. That's the way you once lived. And he says in verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of, not God, we were children of wrath, right? We were under God's wrath, not accepted into his family. We were under God's wrath like the rest of mankind. We are not born as children of God and our natural inclinations certainly don't make us a child of God. They just make us follow sin. And John points out a third thing that will cannot make you a child of God. And that's this, not even your individual will can do it. John says you were born, right? You were, you were made a child of God. You were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Now, let me just call it out. Like every time we start to talk about human will, everybody gets a little bit on edge. 
What role does human will play in God's salvation, right? We all get a little uneasy about this, but I want to be very clear. God, John is teaching that man's will alone is not enough. It doesn't have the power to make someone a child of God. Your will alone does not save you. It cannot save you. Yes, we have a will. Yes, we have agency. Yes, we can make choices. And you can make the choice today to receive God or to reject God. But there's nothing in our will that has the power to make us born of God. The best example I can give, give you for this is that a newborn child doesn't will himself to be born. It came by the will of someone else, right? Uh, a blind person can't will themselves to see. There must be a supernatural act outside of themselves. So your individual will does not have the power in and of itself to make you a child of God. Neither does your impulses, neither does your family bloodline. So what does, what does, what gives us the right to become children of God? What has the authority and the power to make us children of God? You know where that comes from? It comes from God. God makes you a child of God. That's what John is saying. We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but we were born of God. If you've received Christ in this room, if, you, if you're here today and you've received Christ as your savior, it's because of God. God called you. God has the authority to make you his own. And if he's moved in your heart to stir you to the point where you've repented of your sin and made the choice to receive Christ, then all praise and glory and honor be to God because he has the authority to make you his own. So when it comes to receiving Christ, the Christ who came at Christmas, we've talked about what it means. It means to believe in his name, to believe in all who he is. When we've talked about how it happens, we said it, it happens by God, right? His power, his authority. Now let's hit the last part. Who's it for? Who's it for? Verse 12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To all who did receive, to all who did believe in him, the question is like, are you part of the all, right? Are, have you believed? Have you believed upon Christ or have you rejected him? Because not everybody receives Christ. Some reject him. This is what John is talking about in verses nine through 11, where, you know, he, he says in verse nine, like the true light, Jesus, Jesus is the true light, right? Like he's the real source of light and life to the world. Remember what we talked about last week? Like how, you know, John the Baptist wasn't the light. Jesus was the light. Jesus is like the sun. John the Baptist is like the moon. Jesus is the one that has the source of all light. John the Baptist is like the moon, just a floating piece of dust that has the privilege of reflecting the light to the world, right? Like the true light is Christ. And he is the light which gives light to everyone. Just like the sun that shines in our world, like the sun gives light, even if a blind man can't see it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
So John's saying, this Jesus, he came to give light to everyone. He came into the world, the world that he made. Remember week one of our study, chapter one, verse three, all things were made through him. He came into his world, his creation. He came to his own people, the people that he had made. And yet, verse 11 says that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. His own people did not receive him. Verse 10 says that, that not everyone knew him. Yet verse 9 tells us that he came to give light to everyone. So what's going on there, right? You'd think that, if, that if, light, if light has come into the world, then all could see the light, right? That's what we would think. Why then is it that some people just don't see Jesus for who he really is? Why don't they see? It's not because the light hasn't come. Christ has come. That's what Christmas is all about. It's not because the light hasn't shined, right? Jesus is shining and his gospel is going forward into the world. The reason why people can't see is the same reason a blind man can't see the sun. It's because he's blind. That's why some people don't see the goodness of God, as we just sang. It's, it's why some people don't see the gospel and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but sometimes you'll, you'll have these situations where you're praying for somebody to become a Christian and believe the gospel, and um, you know they, something happens in their life, and you're like, they're gonna believe now. Like They have to see God's hand in this. God does something in their life, and he heals them, or he provides for them in a great way, or he spares them from some heartache or sorrow or whatever it is, and you think to yourself, surely they will see the light. Surely they will see the goodness of God. Surely they will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, for whatever reason, they don't. They just move on and kind of keep doing business as usual. Why is that? Is that because God is less merciful than we thought? Is that because God is less of a provider than we understood? Is it because God is less gracious than we, you know, it's because they're blind. It's because they're blind. They need to receive sight. And this is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. It says that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, he has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If people haven't seen the light of Christ, it's because Satan is blinding their spiritual eyes. He, he's, got, he's got them blinded by sin, right? And they... They can't see the goodness of God. They're still entrapped in their sin. John, would keep, he, he writes about this a lot more as he writes out the gospel of John. I won't mention every passage, but we all basically know John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life, not perish. Right, So we love John 3, and it's this great passage of God's love and his way of salvation through Jesus. But you know what comes right after John 3, 16? If you just jump down a couple verses, John 3, 19 through 20, it says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, talking about Jesus, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. All right, so some people just love their sin. They, they haven't seen the goodness of God, so they just love their sin. They love their ungodliness. They don't want to see the truth. And here's the reality. Many times they don't want to have to see the truth because they don't want to have to admit they've been wrong their whole life. They don't want to have to admit that they've lived the wrong way. They don't want to have to admit that they're not good enough for God. They don't want to admit that they're a sinner, right? People don't want to have to come to grips with these things. And so they just cherish their sin and they close their eyes. They remain blinded. And that's why we started where we started in today's sermon. You must remember, sometimes receiving a great gift requires great humility. Because if you're going to become saved, if you're going to become a child of God, you have to have the ability to admit at one point you aren't his child. You are a sinner. You are under God's wrath and you need forgiveness if you and I didn't need someone to pay the price for our sin, God would have never had to send Jesus. And you must come to understand, like, if you could just be a good enough person or do enough good things on your own or whatever, then why God didn't have to send Jesus for you, but he did. Why? Because you're a sinner in need of a great savior. Have your eyes been open to that reality? Sometimes... Receiving a great gift requires great humility. When it comes to your righteousness in God's eyes, you've got to be ready to admit, I stink. I'm not good at being righteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. And it's like when you come to that point where you're willing to humble yourself and admit your sin and realize you need a savior, when you're at that point when you say, God, I am a terrible sinner, but you are a great savior. I need you. What happens in that moment? The blinders fall off. You see the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you repent and believe in him and you become God's child. I was sitting with a guy this past week. We grabbed lunch together and he was sitting there and talking with me and he said, I was raised in church, but until month, uh, just a few months ago, I never believed the gospel. He's like, it's hard for me to say that. But I feel like over the past few weeks, he said, the blinders fell off my eyes over the past few months. <laughs> what does that mean? That means God has given him sight. He has received the gospel and now he's a child of God. What's, where are you today? Have you received the gospel? Have you received Christ into your life? That's the big question. Will you reject Jesus? Or will you receive him? That's the question. What does it again, what does it mean to receive him? It means to believe in his name, to believe in he is all of who he is. To believe in all of what he's done. To accept all of what he's taught. When you do, you become a child of God. How does that happen? You become a child of God by God. His power and authority making you his own. Who can receive him? All. To all who received him, to all who believed upon his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So that's the question. Will you receive him or will you reject him? To be a child of God, you must receive the Christ who came at Christmas. 
I want to pray right now. And as I pray out loud, I would invite you guys to just bow your heads and pray with me. And Caleb and the band, they can come and begin to lead us in singing. But really, as you, uh, you've heard the preaching of God's word now, and now you have to figure out how are you going to respond, you know? So as I pray out loud, some of you may have something stirring in your heart where you know, I've never received Christ. I've never believed in his name. As I pray out loud, would you pray silently in your heart and receive Christ as your savior? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this portion of your word that is so clear about what it means to receive you. I thank you, Lord, that you have called me and that you have saved me and that you ever put it in my heart to receive you as my savior. I thank you, Lord. Just remembering the years of life wandering from you and how things were so different and being far from you. Thank you for your saving grace, Lord. And now for anybody who's here today in this room and maybe they thought they were a Christian because they've just kind of always been in a Christian family or maybe they believed that they could work their way to you and just be a good enough person to become one of your children. I pray today that you would persuade their hearts that they need to be saved, that they need to receive Christ. And so Lord, I pray today for any of them, they might be feeling this right now, that their hearts would be stirred and they would receive Christ into their life. What, what a great gift that Christmas represents. Thank you. Uh, thank you, God, for sending Jesus for sinners like us. We would be lost forever without you. So we thank you for our great salvation in Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.